Well, good morning. How's everyone doing today? Those of you with basements, how are you doing today? Keeping okay? Awesome. It's so good to be here this morning and to be entering into this week of prayer. And, uh, and I think that's a perfect place for us to start uh, as I kind of start my first uh, sort of official Sunday, I guess, here. As we talk through our vision, our, our mission here, what we believe we have been put here in this particular place at this particular time as a church. Who do we want to be? And so I think prayer is a perfect place for us to start in that and to dedicate ourselves to that. Uh, this morning, as we dive into this new series, uh, my, my hope is that as we kind of look at this, we are going to begin to have a better, clear understanding of who we are and why we do what we do. I simply would share this kind of our mission statement or, or whatever. Is we exist to be a community where people meet Jesus and become more like him. And so this week and next week, what I want to do is to look at some of the key passages that have helped shape this vision. And so today we're going to be looking at like a greatest hits. Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage called John 3.16. Some of you are already reciting it in your head. And specifically, I want to look at it through the lens of what does that mean for us as a community as we long for people to meet Jesus. And next week, we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew 28, uh, often referred to as the Great Commission. And we're going to be talking about what does it mean for us to go and to make disciples and to become more like him. But today we're going to start with meeting Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to John chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 16. So if you have a Bible, please go there. Or if you have an app or whatever it is that you use, um, I'd encourage you to open that up now. Uh, and here's kind of my plan where I see things going. We'll, uh, I'll read the passage. Then I want to take some time to pray and then we'll kind of get into things, looking at some context, looking at the passage, and how it applies to us and to our vision as a church. Uh, just to say up front, uh, kind of my hope, or, or something that I hope happens this morning is probably a better way to say it, is John 3.16, again, if you have been someone who's been raised in the church or been around the church for a long time, it's kind of like a greatest hits. It's like the Hey Jude of the Bible. Everyone knows it. Even if you don't really know it, you still kind of know it. And one of the things that happens, Dallas Willard, he's a theologian and a philosopher, Christian philosopher, and he says this, that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Essentially what he's saying when he says that is that sometimes you can become so familiar with something, often you will take it for granted, or you will think that you have it all figured out. And once you get to that place, often it will distance you from it, and you'll actually start to lose your touch with whatever it is um, because you just kind of write it off or you dismiss it. And I, one of the things I worry about is sometimes this passage for some of us is something we are so familiar with. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that as we read it together, that we will discover it with fresh ears and new eyes. So, so let me read it, and then we'll pray, and we will dive into things. Starting at, we'll read verse 16 and 17, and if you don't have it, we have it up on the screen there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And we pray that it would lead us and guide us this morning. 
Lord, we long to be a community where people meet Jesus and become more like him. And we realize that's not something that we can do on our own. That's something that only happens with you as your spirit leads us and guides us and empowers us. And so we pray even this morning that you would be changing us, making us more like Jesus, uh, giving us more courage, giving us more sensitivity to your spirit and to your leading, more wisdom, more discernment. And God, we pray that you renew within us a passion for going and following this vision as a church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so John 3, 16. Actually, can we just go back to John 3, 16? So I just, uh, I, for God so loved the world. Now, the original audience, just a few things for you to know. This, uh, this particular passage, we all hear it a lot, but it flows out of a story of a particular person who met Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. He was a religious mover and shaker in his time. He was a person with a lot of power, social influence, and he comes to Jesus at night, partly because he isn't sure if he's supposed to be going and talking to Jesus, but more so what the author of John is trying to, or this particular passage is trying to tell us is that Nicodemus was in the dark. He didn't have things figured out. He didn't really know what was going on. And so he goes to Jesus to try and get some clarity. And he goes and starts asking questions. And Jesus begins giving him these brilliant theological double entendres. And essentially what he is revealing to Nicodemus is that Nicodemus doesn't have any concept or understanding about who Jesus truly is. And even more significantly, who the true God of Israel really is. What his heart, what his intention is for humanity. And essentially their conversation climaxes with Jesus talking about, he uses again his theological double entendre, a word that has multiple meanings, and he talks about being lifted up. And that word for some in that particular context could be used to describe someone who's being lifted up or exalted, honored. It's like the moment when you do something great and everyone praises you and acknowledges how great you are. Uh, and it can also be understood in a literal sense of being lifted up. And Jesus grabs onto this image, and, he, and, and Nicodemus hears it, and he thinks Jesus is talking about some sort of exaltation that's going to happen. But Jesus, at the same time, is talking about how he is going to be lifted up onto a cross and how this is going to be his greatest moment of exaltation. And then our passage jumps, the narrator jumps in and begins to read, say this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, for the original audience, they would have been somewhat steeped, most of them probably were Greek, but many of them would have been steeped or at least some degree of awareness about the Jewish culture and the Jewish heritage. And so they would be able to, they would hear these stories and they'd tie it to different stories that have gone on in the Jewish tradition. And there's something profound about this, for God so loved the world. They are used to hearing, for God so loved Israel, that he gave them the promised land or that God gave them the Torah, the commands, like how it is to live and walk with God, or, or that God gave them the prophets. He loved Israel so much he gave the prophets to, to go and direct them and to get them back on the right path. But John does something really interesting with this passage. He doesn't say God so loved the Israel like many of the Jewish people in the audience may have been anticipating. He says this, God so loved the world. Now for us, we are so steeped in kind of as God loves everybody and we've heard this passage so many times, God so loves the world that, that we actually miss just how profound and significant this is. 
Because if you were to go through and read through the rest of the Gospel of John, or if you go through and read through the John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you will find that the world is almost always used in a way to describe that which is hostile towards God. The world is a broken, fallen, going off the rails kind of place. The world is the thing that is blinded to who God truly is. The world is who rejects God. The world is who says, I'm going to go things my own way. And yet John, he flips the script and he says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Now this word believe, and we can skip ahead. I, I skip ahead a few slides. Go to the believes. God, um, here in the text it says, he, um, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now typically in our culture, at this particular junction in time, when we talk about what it means to believe, usually it is, it, um, we could describe it as being intellectual assent. And so we believe in God. That means we think God exists, that God is real. And the idea behind it is sort of this, well, we just think that it's real, that it happens. But in the ancient mentality, the word believe has so much more going for it. It means so much more. It's, such more, uh, it's significantly more rich than what we would simply say as believes. is just kind of an intellectual up in your head. I think that this is true about the world. In the ancient life to something, uh, the idea of committing your life to something, to devoting your life to something. Uh, the uh, biblical scholar Marcus Borg, he puts it this way in his book, Jesus. He says it, he, he equates believing as centering our life in God. Essentially, and, and what does that mean? Well, he kind of breaks it down like this. Let me go to the next slide. To center your life in God means that you yearn for God, that you pay attention to it that you commit yourself to God, that you be loyal to God, that you value God above all else. When John writes to believe, when Jesus invites us to place our faith, our trust in him, it is more than just, hey, believe this in your head. It is rather a giving up of your entire life. It is a rearranging of all of your priorities it is decentralizing yourself as being what your life and world is all about instead putting Jesus at the center and saying, I'm going to commit all of who I am, all that I have to you and to your purposes. This is why repentance is such a significant part of the Christian story. Jesus throughout his ministry, his call as he goes and he proclaims his message, he, he goes and he meets people and he invites them to leave behind their old way of thinking, their old way of life, to turn away from it and to place him at the center of their life. I love the way that Dallas Willard, he uh, quotes or he talks about repentance in this way. He says this, this is a call for us to reconsider how we have been approaching our life in light of the fact that we are now in the presence of Jesus having the option of living within the surrounding movements of God's eternal purposes of taking our life into his life. And so the act of faith is us saying, God, my life is no longer mine. It is now yours. And I'm going to build my life. I'm going to center my life around who you are and what you want for me. Going back to our 
text, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now that word eternal life is an interesting one. It's one that we're probably somewhat familiar with. We've heard a number of times. And what are some of the images that immediately come to mind when you hear it? Maybe it's fluffy clouds and people with angel wings and halos. Uh, Maybe it's uh, golden gates. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's just been inspired by Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. Uh, I'm not sure what you think of when you think about eternal life. Often we think about it as being this place that we go, a destination that we get to go and enjoy after we die. It's kind of like the ultimate all-inclusive resort that goes on forever and ever. And one of the, our lives, but that is not, all those ideas sound great, and maybe they bring some sort of reassurance in our lives, but that is not what Jesus has in mind when he talks about what it means to experience eternal life. I want to invite you to skip ahead. Actually, first I'll say this. If you go through and read through what's called the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find something really interesting there. There's not a lot of talk about this eternal life, but one of the things that Jesus talks about again and again is this language of kingdom. He uses it over and over again. He proclaims that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come, that it's at hand, that it's here right now. And it's embodied and lived out in him. But when you get to the Gospel of John, that language of kingdom disappears pretty quickly. And Jesus begins to talk about life. In fact, if you go through and read through all of the Gospel of John, he uses the word over 40 times. And when Jesus talks about life, specifically in the context of eternal life, he's not talking about some far-off place that you go after you die. He's talking about a certain type of life to be experienced here and now, and for eternity. So go to John chapter 17. So we're skipping ahead a little bit. John chapter 17. And so here Jesus is praying in the garden. He's about to be arrested. And uh, this is what he prays. We'll look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Father, the hour has come Glorify your son that your son may glorify you for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who have given him. You have given him. Now this is eternal life. Again, he's used this term life, eternal life all throughout his gospel. And then we get to this. Jesus says this. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For Jesus, eternal life is not some far-off destination. For Jesus, it is found in a relationship with him and with his Father. He uses this word to know. Now, interesting, we often think about no. Again, we think we kind of similar to how we think about believe. It's this intellectual ascent. I know this. We think about a test, and I need to know information. I go and I write it down, and I, if I know it, I get the answers right. If I don't know it, then I don't get the answers correct. The, the word is gnosko, and uh, it is not simply just about intellectual knowledge. This is about an experiential kind of knowledge. In fact, actually, sometimes the word is used in the Greek, uh, when the Greek is translating Hebrew to uh, suggest a sexual union. 
And so there's this idea of this intimacy that is inherent within the word to know. When I was in high school, I was really into surfing. I, I would go to the store, I would buy surf magazines, uh, I would buy Transworld Surf, because that was like the cool surf magazine, not Surfer, that was for posers. And I would go through and I would read these things with an extreme intensity. And I would go through and I'd find out what is the best kind of surf wax to get for your board, or what are the best boards, who are the best surfers, what is it that makes them distinct, what are, what's happening in the various different competitions, where are the best places in the world to surf. And I would sit and I would read these things through and I'd rip the pages out and I'd put them up on my wall. Um, the problem was is I lived in like just outside of Toronto, there are not a lot of great places for surfing. And so pretty much my entire relationship with surfing was I could tell you all sorts of information about it. I could tell you about who had just won the cup. I could tell you all those things, but, but I hadn't actually experienced it for myself. Until about eight years ago, we were given, my wife and I, my wife Julie and I, we were given a generous gift to go away and we traveled to Barbados and I got to go surfing. And I had all this information and all this knowledge, but I pop up on the board. Actually, that's, that's being generous. I kind of <laughs> stumble up and you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is what it's really happening. And finally, you actually catch a wave and you ride it and you wipe out and the salt water you inhale suddenly is burning the inside of your throat, but you come out and you're just like, Ah, oh, I have to do that again. There is the knowledge that we can have, the information, you can know that, but then, then there's the other kind of knowledge, the experiential knowledge, the Gnosko knowledge. And that is the kind of knowledge that Jesus wants for us to have, to know and experience that kind of relationship. It's not a destination it is a relationship. Which, of course, brings us to the difficult reality. I mean, so often we get caught up in conversations with, with talking when our focus is on the afterlife and who's in and who's out and who gets to go to heaven, who gets to go to hell. But, but suddenly when you realize in this context, wait a minute, eternal life is not about a destination, it's about a relationship. Suddenly that makes a whole lot more sense. And suddenly that begins to reframe what we think about when we talk about what it means to perish. Because if Jesus is the ultimate source of real, eternal, meaningful, purposeful life, and we choose to reject him, if we choose to know, which is used in verse uh, with him, well, where else do we go? The language that's used in verse uh, 18, if you go to the next slide, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The language there, even to perish, it's this idea of to suffer loss or destruction. It's not just simply Jesus saying, hey, I want to get rid of you. This, actually, it's not that at all. It's Jesus saying, hey, I want to give you life. That you on your own is not enough. In fact, you just on your own just leads to destruction and ultimately to death. Come and enter into the relationship I share with my Father. I want to invite you in and for you to experience that incredible eternal life both here and now, and it just so happened that it goes on forever. I might describe it this way if we go to the next slide. 
eternal life is when we are caught up in the perfectly selfless, loving relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's when the same relationship that Jesus shares with his Father starts to become true in us. It ultimately comes down to being in an intimate relationship with God. So all of this sounds great, but then we get to that point where it's like, well, okay, how do you have an intimate relationship with God? What does that mean? What does that look like? Does it, does it have to involve some sort of charismatic experience or some mystical experience? What does that mean for us? And one of the things that is amazing that I love about the New Testament is all these different stories about people meeting and encountering Jesus. And one of the most incredible things is that none of those stories are exactly the same. So the last thing I want to do today is to try and declare some sort of formula. This is how you do it. This is how it has to happen. But I would argue that these are three things that begin to become true of us as eternal life begins to take root within us. What does eternal life look like here and now? And I'd simply break it down to this, that eternal life as God's spirit is growing and welling up inside of us and transforming us and changing us. And as we are becoming more and more united in the incredible love that Jesus has with his father and the father has with the son, we begin to see this. We begin to learn what God loves. We begin to do what God loves. And we begin to love what God loves. James K.A. Smith is a philosopher, and he has this incredible book called You Are What You Love. And I love how he talks about what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. He says that Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and crave a world where he is all in all. And as we more and more align ourselves with God, we begin to change and our hearts and our desires begin to change. And the amazing thing is that we begin to lose ourselves. We get so caught up in who Jesus is and the things that Jesus loves and our desires begin to be reshaped and changed. David Brooks, in his book, The Road to Character, he captures, he's talking about love and essentially in a romantic sense, but I think some of what he says is true. Uh, ultimately, what we experience in our relationship with God, Brooks says this, a successful marriage, and I think this is true actually of any friendship, any deep, meaningful relationship, a successful relation, marriage is a 50-year conversation getting ever closer to the melding of mind and heart. Love expresses itself in shared smiles and shared tears and ends with the statement, love you, I am you. Now, before you think he's a raging narcissist, let me continue. Go to the next slide. Many observers have noticed that love eliminates the distinction between giving and receiving since the selves of the two loves are intermingled, scrambled, and fused. It feels more delicious to give to the beloved than to receive. Go to the next slide. Montaigne, he was, a, a, from what I understand, a French philosopher, writes that the person in love who receives a gift is actually giving her lover the ultimate gift, the chance to experience the joy of giving to her. 
I mean, how true is this when, like, we've just had Christmas, and chances are you've probably given gifts. And, and I realize how easy it is to get caught up in the consumerism and the materialism. But my wife and I, one of the things we've just discovered that is just so much joy to be able to give gifts to our children. It's just to see the excitement, to see the joy they have as they open those gifts. And for us, it's just so incredible. And I think that's so true as we begin to lose ourselves in the relationship of God in the triune God, we begin to have our hearts rearranged. And suddenly we're not sure where one begins us and where the other ends. John 17 captures Jesus' relationship, this kind of relationship that he has with his father. He says, as father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. There's not like a scorecard. There's not, hey, I'm doing this so that I look good. There's this mutual constant sharing. And and, uh, just a few verses later in verse four, it says this, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before, with you before the world began. It says everything is shared. It's not about me. It's about us together. So what does that mean for us to live without walls. Can we go to the next slide? Living without walls. Uh, My wife and I, we've been married about a little over 10 years. We dated and were engaged for about five years. So we've been together 15 years. And we started dating when we were in university. Uh, So I would have been kind of my early 20s. And and something that I, I love, I cherish about our relationship is that I had never dated anyone before I started dating her, and she had never dated anyone before dating me. And so it was a a season for us of all sorts of firsts, you know, first time holding hands, first time saying I love you, first kiss, just this amazing time. And it's something that I can cherish and I look back on, and it's something that is really special and significant that we share. Not that that has to be for everyone, but it just happened to be how things worked out for us. And as great as that is, there's also another side to it, which isn't always the best, which is mainly I did a lot of dumb things in my early 20s. And she has no one else to compare me to, to be like, oh man, like I guess that's just guys in their 20s. Um, Actually, that's no excuse. I was probably just me. I was just immature. Uh, But one particular story that kind of like I see as like the pinnacle a place where it was like, I know self happened. We'd been dating for a few years. And we were at that place where it was like, I know Julie was really asking questions, not like marriage stuff necessarily, but trying to figure out, where is this going? What's happening in this relationship? And for me, it was a, a relationship that was very much, uh, for me, like, I liked it. It was a lot of fun. There was a lot of benefits. But I was kind of keeping it to some extent at a distance because I wanted to remain comfortable and just to enjoy life. And so uh, it, whenever the relationship, being in that relationship was convenient for me, it was great. I wanted to give all my energy to it. And when it wasn't convenient for me, I just wasn't there. I didn't call. I didn't make the drive. I was, oh, I'm going out with the guys tonight. And I remember this kind of, there was some tension that we could, I couldn't sense it, but I'm sure it was there. <laughs> <laughs> my wife just said yes. Um, <laughs> Amen. Uh, 
And I remember this conversation that we had and, and my, my then girlfriend, now wife, sharing how, uh, basically saying, hey, like, what's going on here? Are we in this relationship or not? Because if we're going to do this thing, I need to be at the center of your life. I can't just be this convenient thing that you bring in when you want to and dismiss me when you don't. And I remember feeling, again, blinded by my own selfishness and this feeling kind of like attacked and like, oh, what's this? And I remember this was like the most rational response I could have to her pouring out and sharing her desires and longings for what this relationship could be. And this was my response. I said, Julie, I get all of that, but I'm really good. I'm just really good at being single. (laughs) Now you laugh. I thought this was a really good response. And I remember Julie looking at me and saying, but you're not single. At least not yet. No, she didn't say that last part. I'm sure she was thinking it. (laughs) But for her, she was saying, hey, there's this invitation for a relationship. It's going to cost you something. You're going to have to lay aside things. It's going to mean you opening up your life to me and being open to my life and us sharing in this together. It means rethinking things, reprioritizing things. And I remember in that moment, not sure what I wanted, but somehow by God's grace, I realized that this is actually the best thing. And I look back on that and I have no regrets whatsoever. How much more true of that is our relationship with God? That we are invited into this eternal life relationship with the triune God of all creation. And it's this invitation to open up our lives and to leave things behind and to be tree changed and transformed. That's what it means for us to meet Jesus is to have our lives completely changed and rearranged by him and to share in his divine selfless love that he shares with his father, that he has modeled for us through the cross. It means a reshaping of what we love and making our lives about the things that God loves. Which brings us to one final question, which is what does God love? And when we look at this passage, John 3.16, we are reminded that God loves the world. The broken, hostile, dangerous, sometimes going off the rails, totally blind to who God is world. And we, as a church, we are called to love the world too. Not to go along with everything they do, but to go and be present in the world and to be an expression, to be a monument to the incredible, selfless, redeeming love that Jesus has revealed to us through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And our longing and our desire is for everyone, all people, to come to know that life-changing love and to enter into that intimate relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
We're going to transition to a time of communion. I, I want to invite the servers to kind of come up and get ready. Uh, and we're going to take a few minutes, just kind of be quiet. And then I'm going to share a few thoughts. And then uh, we will take communion together. Please feel free to just take as, you, um, as it gets handed out to you. So um, let's take a few, a few minutes to be quiet. Heavenly Father, we are reminded uh, that we are, we are a part of the world, uh, that we were a part of the world, uh, that we were hostile to you, that we were going our own way, and yet you sent Jesus to die on the cross, that you gave your son, that we might, that we might receive eternal life. As we eat this meal together, I pray that that would be at our uh, that would be our focus. Realizing that we are a people who needed to be saved, a people who could not make it on our own, and we thank you that through your Son you have invited us into this incredible relationship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Fascinating story. In Luke chapter 24, we'll just wait, we'll start handing out in just a second. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, it's just after Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, uh, and he's been resurrected. Some of the disciples are aware of, well, some of them think they've sort of seen him. They know that he's, some of them think he's alive, but some of them haven't had their entire world turned upside down. And there are these two men, two of his disciples, who are walking from Jerusalem to Aramaeus, and they encounter Jesus on the road, and they don't recognize him. And they're talking about how basically their worlds have fallen apart. Everything has gone off the rails. And they go and they meet up with Jesus. And he starts explaining to them, actually, no, wait a minute. Like, they're like, this guy, Messiah, he was going to set us free. He was going to make the world right. And then he was put to death. And Jesus starts to explain to them, no, 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 wait a minute. This death, the Messiah, he had to die to set you free. To, to really model for you, to show you, and to break free from sin and death that had gripped your life. And as he begins to explain this and share this, uh, they still aren't quite getting it. And then he takes the bread and he breaks it. And instantly their eyes are open because they remember sitting down with Jesus, eating the meal and him explaining how this was his body that he had given for us. And so may you this morning discover and meet Jesus in this meal, being reminded of his incredible grace and that you have been invited into his incredible mission of healing and redemption in this world. Let's eat and drink together with joy.